You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 126, The Nintendo Entertainment System. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of You Don't Know Flack. Today is Sunday, March 3rd, 2013 and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. Today on You Don't Know Flack, I'll be sharing my memories of the great Nintendo Entertainment System, otherwise known as the NES. The music you hear in the background is from the Game Sound Deco or GSM release of the Super Mario 3 soundtrack. I bought this CD... Uh, it's an import CD from Japan. I bought it at CGE 2007, uh, which I drove to in Las Vegas, and I listened to this CD quite a bit on the way home. And uh, since this episode is about the Nintendo Entertainment System, I thought it would be fitting to throw this on in the background. We've got a lot of stuff to cover, so let's go ahead and check that voice mailbox this week. Hello, Flack. You have two messages. First message. Hi, my name is Ted Ruxton, and I'm a big fan of your podcast. I called to tell you that you're doing a really great job and keep up the good work. I do have a question, though. It's about Commodore computers. What good are the memory expansion modules? I never found a program that actually took advantage of it. If you could explain that, I'll hang up and listen. Thanks. Well, Teddy, that is a Teddy Ruxpin. Was that Teddy Ruxpin? Um, Teddy? Ted, uh, that is a good question. The uh, Commodore released three RAM expansion units, or REUs. Uh, there were three different models. The 1700, which had 128K of uh, RAM, and the 1750, which had 512K of RAM. Those were both designed for the Commodore 128. And uh, later, they also released the 1764, which was 256K of additional RAM for the Commodore 64. Uh, these all had different issues. The 1764's biggest issue was that it was such a draw that the Commodore 64's power supply couldn't really handle the additional voltage. So Commodore 64 owners of the REU had to um, buy bigger power supplies or upgrade their power supplies. With any peripheral like this, you have the chicken and the egg issue, which is, you know, people don't code for it because you don't have the hardware, but people won't buy the hardware because there's no software that supports it. So um, what uses were there for the Commodore RU? Well, um, Geos supported it right out of the box. So if you were a Geos user, you had a RAM drive that you could copy things to and from. Now, there, I know there were people that used Geos. I wasn't one of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, just, especially if you just had one disk drive, I had two, but if you just had one disk drive, Geos, you know, was just so slow and, and, uh, was such a pain to use. Everything was so much quicker just to use, um, the command line. Uh, but Geos did support it and there were some utilities, a lot of copy software used the additional RAM, uh, made it easier to copy disks into RAM and then write them back to another disk. Uh, and then BBS owners tended to use the uh, REU because the RAM drive was so much faster than uh, a floppy drive or even the Commodore hard drive. So you could copy your BBS out to the RAM disk and run it from RAM uh, and then hopefully do frequent backups. In 2010, at Breakpoint, the uh, group Crest released a demo called Blue REU. It's B-L-U-R-E-U. And in the show notes, I'll link to the YouTube video of that. But that was, I believe, the first demo uh, Commodore 64 demo that actually used the RAM expansion unit. And as you can see in that demo, if you watch that, 
Uh, there's a lot of different pictures in full screen 320 by 200 in 256 colors and some different effects. Some uh, looks like some ray tracing going on. Uh, things that you don't normally see on a Commodore 64. So, uh, but you know, running one demo uh, or a you know small handful of games is not really a reason to buy a RAM expander unit. Now, the 1541 Ultimate that I'm always referring to that I have uh, for my 64 will emulate a uh, Commodore REU. So, you know, any of these programs that were designed to run with that, all you have to do is, um, you know, put one of these uh, 1541 Ultimates in your 64 and you can actually use the SD card as extended RAM for your Commodore. So, um, that way you can actually run this blue REU demo or if you really want to use uh, Geos and and use that RAM disk, then uh, that's there for you. So, And it looks like we have a second message on the voice mailbox, so let's see what this message is. Next message. Hey, Slack. What would be the best old computer to bludgeon someone to death with? I'm kind of thinking the Coleco Atom, um, because the printer's attached, and so you got this huge thing with really to hurt someone with, but what's your take? Thanks, I'll hang up and listen. Well... I have to disagree with you. I don't think that the Atom, uh, I think it's going to be difficult to hit somebody with because I think, you know, with the printer trailing behind, I think that's going to be an issue. The problem with most computers and using them as a weapon is that there's not much to hold on to. You know, Apple II, if you hit somebody with it, um, that, that case is just going to fly off. And even a Commodore 64, as much as I love to defend it, uh, I think those keys will go flying anywhere if you really hit somebody hard with a Commodore 64. Now, the Apple IIc, I would say, would be a close contender because it has that built-in handle on the back. And so that's going to get around that problem of uh, it slipping out of your hands the first time you hit somebody with a computer. If you were going sheer weight, you know, I could go with the TRS-80 Model 3. Um, you know, being all in one piece with the monitor in there, but that's going to be pretty tough to swing. But the Commodore SX64, the portable version of the Commodore, first of all, uh, the keyboard clicks closed into place, which will prevent the problem of the keys flying off everywhere. And it has that giant handle, which would allow you to swing it. Um, and it weighs about 20 pounds. So I would have to say, you know... A close second would be the K-Pro 2, the portable um, K-Pro, which is similar in design to the SX-64, and it's all metal. So it probably weighs even more, and it has some sharp edges. So that might be, that kind of gets away from the definition of bludgeoning, though. Um, more cut wounds on that. But the SX-64, I think, uh, if you can find one, I have one right here, and I've never, never quite actually looked at it as a uh, melee weapon. But yeah, I think this would... Um, this would do the trick. So thanks for calling in, everybody. Uh, if you have any questions about old hardware, old games, uh, old arcade games, any questions, or just uh, have a question about uh, bludgeoning people, I'm, I'm good for um, retro video game, retro computer, and um, I don't even know what you call it, uh, murder advice. <laughs> so there you go. Thanks, everybody, again for calling in. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode of You Don't Know Flack, you can always email your feedback to me at robohara at robohara.com, or you can leave a message on the You Don't Know Flack voice mailbox, which is area code 206-309-9501. I want to give a quick shout-out to my friend Ferg, Fergojasan, as he is on my forum, which I always read in a really bad fake uh, samurai accent for gorgeous uh, but uh, Ferg has started a new podcast and it is the uh, Atari 2600 game by game podcast uh, and Ferg's goal of this podcast is to play every Atari 2600 game in the order that they were released and do one episode per game so I think that sounds really cool and um, last week right as I was recording you don't know flack Ferg released the first episode, the introduction episode, which is, um, it's always a, a good, you know, people like to listen to the first one to find out what your podcast is going to be about. Uh, and Ferg talks a little bit about how he started collecting Atari 2600, and he has a lot of the uh, same experiences I did of uh, going to garage sales and, and thrift stores and things like that. So uh, it was a really good first episode, and 
right as I begin recording this episode, I see that Ferg has released episode number two, which is all about combat. Um, and Ferg is taking emails. He tells you what the next game is going to be, and you can write in if you have uh, stories. I wrote in a story about combat. I haven't listened to it to see if it made the podcast yet. But um, uh, anyway, if you want to listen to Ferg's podcast, he has a Facebook page set up now, which is 2600 Game by Game Podcast. Or you can follow Ferg over on Twitter, which is uh, twitter.com forward slash 2600 Game by Game. So if you're an Atari 2600 fan, uh, be sure to check out Ferg's new podcast. I wanted to mention that this episode is sponsored by Doug McCoy. And some of you guys already know Doug from the Retroist uh, website. And Doug also appears on the podcast uh, as a guest speaker, as I do. Doug is the author of two different books. The first one is called Anesthetized, which is it's kind of like Doug's version of Commodore except for for the NES. It is a uh, memoir. Doug grew up playing the Nintendo Entertainment System and has a lot of great stories. Doug also wrote a book called The Arcadian, uh, which is another good book. I think um, I actually read that book first before Anesthetized, but they're both really good books. They are available for $0.99 cents, uh, on Amazon.com. You can find out about uh, those books and more about Doug over on his website, which is authordougmccoy.com. I have to mention one thing. Um, I, I was looking at Arcadian on Amazon, and I think Doug's first review is a one-star review, which I hate when people go on. You know, it's like, if you don't like something... I don't know what, I, you know, I mean, I get it if you want to warn people, you know, oh, don't buy this product. So if you go look up uh, Arcadian on Amazon.com, there's two reviews. There's a five-star review from somebody who obviously read the book and enjoy it. And then there's a one-star review. And the one-star review says, I bought this because I thought it would have all the games in it and I'd be able to play them on my Kindle. Okay, well, that's stupid. <laughs> you just bought an ebook and thought that you're going to be able to play all these arcade games on your Kindle. So basically this review says I'm a moron and I'm going to give this book a one star review. So I don't know why people would do that. Um, and, and plus, I mean, basically what you're doing is going to Amazon and giving somebody a one star review, an author who wrote this book, um, over a something because you didn't read the details. I mean, it obviously says it's a book and number two, it's over 99 cents. So it's amazing that somebody put that much effort into going and putting a one-star review on somebody's product over a 99-cent item. But anyway, uh, go give uh, Doug's website a visit. Again, that was uh, authordougmccoy.com. And go check out Doug's stuff. Uh, his, his books are not do not deserve one-star reviews. Uh, they deserve five-star reviews, and they're both very good. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, if you don't know Flack, you can head over to the website, which is podcast.robohara.com, and click on the Sponsors link up at the top for more information. So thanks again to Doug for sponsoring this episode of You Don't Know Flack, and his NES book, Anesthetize, is a great segue into this week's topic, which is the NES. So on last week's show, we talked a little bit about the video game crash and uh, what a horrible time from 1983 to 1985 was uh, and that nothing was released. But um, some of this is not true, as we know. I talked a little bit about the computer games that were released at that time, the arcade games, um, and there were still Atari games being released at that time. In fact, the Atari 2600 Junior wasn't released until 1985. So there was enough of a market um, you know, for that, so... There were still console video games, but things had slowed down a little bit and um, started shifting over to the home computer market. And then in the fall of 1985, Nintendo released the NES, or Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, uh, I don't know anybody that had one actually that early. There was a larger um, release in the spring of 1986. And so in 1986, I would say it's more 
uh, when people I knew started getting uh, Nintendo Entertainment Systems or NES Systems. Uh, my friend Jason had one, and to be honest, I only remember playing Super Mario Brothers over um, at his house. I'm sure he must have had some other games, but that's the only game that I remember playing there. And then my next-door neighbor, Doug, he had uh, Super Mario Brothers also and Duck Hunt, and I remember playing Duck Hunt quite a bit over there. He also had Double Dribble, Dribble. the uh, basketball game, and Excite Bike, and that was probably my favorite early NES game. I was a big fan of Excite Bike in the arcade, and um, you know the home version, the NES version of Excite Bike, is almost identical to the arcade, and it comes with a level editor, and you could create your own racetracks in Excite Bike. So we would sit over and just make these crazy uh, levels with a million jumps in them, and, and uh, you know little secrets where. This area you had to go slow or fast or whatever, so you had to kind of um, know the level to actually be able to get through it all the way. But uh, I remember spending a lot of time doing that. And then my friend Jeff had an NES pretty early on, and um, you know Jeff, I've mentioned Jeff quite a bit um, in Commodore and in all my adventures. Uh, we both had Commodores and we both loved arcade games, um, but they had an NES in their living room as well, so. Uh, whenever I would spend the night over at Jeff's house, a lot of times his mom would take us to um, one of the local movie rental places, and we would rent NES games for the weekend. Um, I remember renting Jeopardy a lot for some reason, but we would play Jeopardy, and we would play Super Mario Brothers, and um, I don't remember playing a lot of uh, role-playing games uh, on the NES, just because, you know, like I said, I was a computer guy, and we had Apple and and uh, Commodore and obviously the PC later on. And I always thought those systems uh, were a lot more geared towards playing role-playing games. Um, so anyway, the Nintendo, the original NES, originally came with Super Mario Brothers. Um, then later versions had uh, the combo Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt. Um, and then, you know... There were lots of different original bundles, but pretty much everybody that had an NES also had Super Mario Brothers. It was kind of like combat. Uh, it was exactly like combat. It was the, the first pack-in game. Combat was the first pack-in game for the Atari 2600, and Super Mario Brothers was the first pack-in game for NES. So everybody had it. Um, and very quickly, it became like a status thing, I guess you could say, uh, to see how good you were at Super Mario Brothers. So, you know, it started like, could you beat the first level? Which, you know, everybody pretty quickly could beat the first level. But then, could you beat the first world? And then, how far could you get? But then, it became more about, like, all the secret things you could find out. Like, um, uh, you know, well, there's a, a hidden um, coin brick on this level, but you have to bust out these other bricks to get to that. Or here's where the secret mushrooms are, the one-up mushrooms. Um... And sometimes you found these things, but this is, of course, way, you know, pre-internet. So uh, there were um, books. Like, I have this book, like a... Um, oh, it's right here. Um, the Ultimate Strategy Guide to Super Mario Brothers. So, you know, you would buy these books. Hold on, let me get this book. The Ultimate Strategy Guide to Super Mario Brothers. And it says, Worlds to Conquer and Odds to Beat. Um, by Richard Crystal. Um... But, um, you know, so you would buy this book. I mean, and one thing I like about it, there's no pictures <laughs> at all in this screenshot. There's nothing in here. Secret restart. It says, after your game is over, quickly press button A, then press start, then press button A, then press start again. You will continue the game at the beginning of the world you just left. Huh. I didn't know that. So on World 1, there's an entire list here. It says, um, for example, where to go? Second question mark. What to do? Jump up and hit mark. What happens? A mushroom is released that will make you big. Where to go? Round hill past fourth pipe. What to do? Jump up and hit an invisible brick. What happens? A mushroom is released for an extra man. So, <laughs> there's an entire, I mean, there's an entire book. Um, you think about... 
you know, you, you don't have the medium of video to show somebody, uh, you know, where to go or what happens or whatever. So it's an entire, it's almost like this was done um, in a spreadsheet. You turn the book sideways. So a lot of, you know, when you would um, go spend the night at someone's house, you know, you would play Super Mario Brothers with them if they had a Nintendo and you would see what they were doing and they would show you secrets and you would show them secrets. So uh, it was kind of this big word of mouth, um, you know, little Nintendo network of kids. Uh, obviously, you had um, Nintendo Power Magazine and other magazines like that where tips and tricks would get shared as well. So it's amazing that um, I love, like, when my kids come home and tell me... Um, you know, something like a game that they played at school or whatever, and I'm like, I used to play that game when I was at school. And so, it like, how these things get passed down uh, in other ways, other than writing them down. Like, you know, I mean, obviously, every kid in the last 30 years or whatever must have told some kid younger than them how to play this game, or teachers and or parents told their kids or whatever. I, I just I think that stuff's interesting. So it was interesting also to watch um, how this knowledge of Super Mario Brothers got transferred between kids, um, you know, pre-internet, pre-email, all that stuff. So the biggest Nintendo game for me by far was Super Mario Brothers 3. Um, we, I think once Jeff got Super Mario Brothers 3, that's all we played. Um, I mean, I just remember... Like spending the weekend at his house and playing Super Mario Brothers three forever, or until someone hit the Nintendo and it would reset, <laughs> and then everybody would be so frustrated that you would stop playing. But um, uh, Super Mario three, I think every now and then somebody still finds new things in there, or people have gone through the code to find every single thing. But um, it was just a massive platform game, you know. Um, all these different little secret things and different things to do and places to go and and um, it was never about trying to beat it as quickly as possible for us. I mean, there were all the the little warps and, and things like that in both uh, Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers Three. But for us, you know, it was just that whole exploring that world and learning the little patterns and stuff. Um, but Super Mario Brothers Three, I mean, that seems like the game that I played the absolute most. So you notice all these stories are about me playing um, NES over at other people's houses. I didn't get an NES uh, very early on, even though it was released in um, late 85 and, and uh, wider release in early 86. I didn't get an NES until the Christmas of 1991. Now, Super Nintendo, which was uh, the successor of the NES, the Super NES or SNES, uh, it was released in August of 91. And um, I was working at Grandy's, um, which was a uh, somewhat localized fast food chain in an Oklahoma, Texas area. And this co-worker of mine was saving up money to try to get a Super Nintendo, and uh, because that was the new thing. So he said he would sell me his original Nintendo, his NES, and about, I think it was about 20 games for $100. Um so that's where I got my NES. I got it from this guy. And it was funny because we both, um, and I guess maybe this is the sign of a, a good business transaction, but we both felt like we were um, ripping the other person off. <laughs> I mean, obviously I knew I was getting a great deal uh, getting 20 Nintendo games at 5 bucks a game and a free NES, basically, you know, at that price to go with it. Uh, that was a great deal for me. And he took that money and instantly uh, turned it around, you know, and, and put it into his Super Nintendo fund. Uh, so, you know, I thought it was a win-win situation. But I had those original games for a while. And then a couple of years later, a friend of mine ended up giving me his uh, original Nintendo and his games, too, which I think was about another 30 games or so. I ended up with a total of about 50 games right off the bat. So uh, that was a pretty good pretty good Nintendo collection um, for, you know, not much money invested. That Nintendo, the original Nintendo I got, I had hooked up in my room. I had it hooked up to this little small television, and I'll tell you a little bit about that TV here in a minute. Um, but, uh, yeah, so once I got that, I would play Super Mario Brothers 3 sitting there next to my Commodore. I would have things uh, running on the Commodore, like, either you know, BBSs or, or um, you know, be modeming and stuff like that. So while I was downloading... Um, I would say the Commodore was still my primary source of entertainment. Uh, 
as far as it came to um, playing games and stuff. But the NES uh, was more of like a side. When when the Commodore was busy doing something else, I'd flip on the NES and do that. And, you know, i got to say, as a Commodore user, I think, maybe not everybody, I'll just speak for myself, but I was insanely jealous of uh, Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers 3 and, and um, several of the games, just because, you know, if you look at the specs, uh, it seems like, the resolution of the NES is less than that of the Commodore, you know? And um, uh, so I never understood why Super Mario Brothers and uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 looked so much better on the NES than anything that was on the, the Commodore 64. And, um, you know, it got to the point where the Great Guiana Sisters was released for the Commodore 64, which is uh, about two Italian women, or two Italian sisters, uh, who uh, are in a dream world, and you know it's a it's a complete ripoff of the Super Mario Brothers. It's the Great Guiana Sisters. That game has a, a story of itself. It could be an entire podcast episode. But um, there were some very early uh, legal threats, which um, got the Great Guiana Sisters pulled off of shelves. But um, one of the uh, big cracking uh, groups, Abyss, at the time, went and edited all the sprites in that game. They went in and changed the graphics uh, and turned Great Guiana Sisters into Super Mario Brothers for the Commodore 64. So it was never officially sold or anything like that, but everybody had a copy of it. So that was as close as I ever got to Super Mario Brothers on the uh, Commodore 64. But um, so yeah, I had this NES, you know, and I, I had uh, I know I talked a lot about Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers 3, but there were some other games that I played. Um, I know that we had uh, Prince of Persia. And we had that on the PC as well, but I remember playing that on the NES. And, um, you know, like I said, I didn't play... I know we I did have uh, both Wizardry and Bard's Tale, uh, but I didn't... You know, those were more computer games to me. Um, I did play a lot of uh, Tech Mobile t- uh, football for the NES. I was really a big fan of Tech Mobile. Now, this is a funny story that I don't think I've ever told before, but... Um, uh, when I worked at Grandy's, I um, dated this girl. Well, it'd be tough to call it dating. I don't think we ever went on a date, but um, uh, I was infatuated with this girl named Stacy. And so, um, uh, several times after work, I would go over to uh, her house, her mom's house, and she had two younger brothers who were twins. And I think they were about oh maybe five years younger than me. I mean, they're too young to be hanging out with, um, you know, without the sister being there, of course. Um, but, uh, they had an NES. And so I would go over there after work and just hang out, you know, for an hour or something. Um, and, uh, they were always playing Dr. Mario. So I started playing Dr. Mario there, um, which is kind of like, um, it's kind of like Tetris. It's like these uh, games where you have to line up colors, and it, if you can do combos and chain combos together, it drops uh, garbage on the other person's side. So uh, I would sit there with the twins and play uh, Dr. Mario. And, I, you know, I remember... Sometimes I remember playing with him, and I don't remember Stacy being around. <laughs> and... Uh, Needless to say, that um, relationship did not uh, pan out. And I don't know where Stacy is today, but I know where my Nintendo is, so that should tell you something. <laughs> anyway. When I moved out of my house, um, which was my, uh, uh, my into my first apartment, I was working at um, this pizza place, and I made about $300 every two weeks. So I made 600 bucks a month. And my apartment cost me 300 which included uh, all bills and basic cable. Um, and then the other 300 I spent each month on um, gas, car payment, car insurance. So it didn't have a lot of spare money. I worked at Pizza Inn, and my friend Andy worked at Pizza Hut. And um, so Andy used to come over all the time. And then after about after I lived there about three months, Andy moved in. But Andy worked um, 8 to 4 at Pizza Hut. So when he would get off work, he would bring a pizza back to the apartment. And we would have pizza uh, for a late lunch. And then I would go to work at 5 and work, you know, 5 to 11, whatever, at Pizza Inn. 
And then I would bring a pizza home and we would have pizza for dinner. So pretty much we just lived off pizza. For breakfast, we would have whatever pizza was left over <laughs> from the day before. So, um, but anyway, um, we had built this entertainment center in the living room out of milk crates uh, and planks of wood. And we had a VCR there. And then we had my NES. And then on top we had my uh, television, which was a 13-inch Emerson television. There was no way you could actually see the television from the couch. It was so small. So you would have to go, uh, you know, like scoot chairs. We had these, um, like, outdoor chairs. (laughs) And we would scoot them up by the TV so we could see, uh, you know, the the screen and play Nintendo. And um, right around the corner from our apartment was this place called Kaleidoscope Video. And every time you would go in there... I mean, I, they kind of specialized in, like, I guess they had normal movies, but they had a giant um, horror movie section and a giant uh, kung fu section, you know, um, karate-type films. And then the whole back half of the store uh, was just adult movies, you know. So every time we walked in, the guy would say, oh, porn's in the back, you know, <laughs> which is funny because we never rented that there. Uh, but what, you know, we did rent a lot of horror movies and, and karate movies. Um, but he also rented Nintendo games and I, and it was really cheap, like a buck a night or something like that. So we would walk over there, rent a couple of Nintendo games and keep them for the weekend. So we did that quite a bit. Um, but anyway, the, the funny thing about that television is that it would do this weird thing where if it didn't have power, uh, it would always reset. So if you unplugged it for a day or something, um, uh, and then plugged it back in, it, whatever channel it was on, there would just be a giant, like, if you turned it on, it would just say three in the middle of the screen. It took up like a third of the screen. So you could still change channels on the front of the TV, channel four or five, whatever, um, and watch TV, but you had this giant number, and you had to use the remote to um, set the channels, and then the, those numbers would go away. So our the couch... And our apartment was also a uh, fold-out couch, a sleeper. And we had folded it out one time, and the remote got stuck under the couch, and the remote uh, for the TV got broken in half, um, which wasn't a huge deal because we were always sitting right you know, in front of the TV, so you could just reach up and turn it on and off. But one day the power went out, and when we came home and turned the TV on, uh, it had gone back and lost all the channels. So... Um, the whole rest of the time, I mean, the only way you could set it was with the remote, and the remote was broke. And this was, like, before um, universal remotes, you know, where uh, you could buy those everywhere. So we still played Nintendo on this TV every day, but there was a giant number three right in the middle. And, you know, when you get so used to something, you don't see it anymore. Like, I mean, I barely even saw it. I remember doing pretty good in playing, even though, you know, a big section of the screen was... Uh, obscured by this giant number three but what was really funny is we used to play the original mario brothers um you know where you would try to uh uh, attack each other or you know then that wasn't really the goal the goal was um uh you know to get through the levels and kill all the creatures but we used to just fight each other we did the same thing with joust um and so you could kind of use this giant number three to your advantage. Like you could just hide behind the number, you know? So like if you're playing joust, uh, you would run around and then you would just hide behind the number three. Um, and the other person would be hiding somewhere and then, you know, you could hear them flapping and then eventually, you know, they might just come out of nowhere and and try to attack you. And the same thing with the Mario brothers, you know, you just find a good spot to hide. So you're, you're too busy watching where you're, character is that you didn't always see where the other person was hiding so that became kind of a um, home field advantage if you will was getting used to um, playing games behind a giant number three on the television Uh, so we spent a lot of time uh, playing nintendo on that tv so in the fall of 1993 um, susan my wife uh, back then uh, we weren't uh, we were friends but we weren't even really dating uh, she had moved about an hour away to Weatherford and was going to college there. And um, her, they had just bought this brand new uh, mobile home. And so the plan was for her to stay in the mobile home and go to college and rent out the other two rooms because this was actually cheaper than um, living in an apartment or a dorm. So um, 
I had talked to her that summer and I decided um, that I would move out there and go to school as well. So, so I, I moved out to Weatherford and I brought all my stuff, my computer and my CDs and, you know, everything that I had. And, um, Susan was moving in as well. And so I was helping her unpack. And I remember she had this box and we pulled the tape off and she pulled three things out of this box. And the first thing was her, uh, Nintendo. So she had an NES as well. By the way, the second thing she pulled out was a Commodore 128 that had been her dad's. And the third thing she pulled out was a frame picture of the three stooges. So based on those three things, I pretty much knew at some point that we would get married. <laughs> Any girl that moves in and brings her Nintendo, her Commodore computer, and a frame picture of the Three Stooges, you should hang on to that woman. And so I did. Um, so we had hooked the Nintendo up uh, in the trailer in the living room, and I don't remember playing it a whole lot at that point. I mean, this is 93, 94 when we lived there, and so, um, uh, you know, the NES is almost 10 years old at that point. Um, but we did still play it. Her favorite game, she did play a lot of Dr. Mario. She played a lot of Tetris. And her game and her friend's game, they loved playing Gauntlet. Um, she has all these stories about these marathon Gauntlet sessions that they used to play in the dorms uh, with her and her friends. And um, so occasionally we would play Gauntlet. Uh, on the NES as well. But, um, yeah, so so we still had that NES, you know, or we had hers, and I think mine was uh, probably in storage at that point. So let's talk a little bit about that time during the 90s. Um, you know, uh, I know Ferg mentioned this on his podcast last week, and I've mentioned this before. I mentioned this during the um, thrift store episode of You Don't Know Flack, but... Um, Man, the 90s were an awesome time when it came to garage sales, thrift stores. I probably picked up, I don't even know, maybe half a dozen um, Nintendos. And you would just get them because, you know, you would go to a garage sale and someone would say, you know, here's an NES and a giant box of games and the whole thing would be 20 bucks, you know. So um, it was cheaper to just buy, you know, the whole thing. Um, and And... By the time, you know, by the late 90s, uh, when you start seeing eBay or whatever, I mean, it was over, you know. Uh, you would still occasionally find things out in the wild, but not like it used to be. I mean, you used to go to thrift stores, and there would be stacks of Nintendo games for a dollar each or two dollars each. Um, you know, you go to antique stores, and there would be games for two or three bucks each. Garage sales, you would pick up just giant boxes, you know, some kid... Uh, got tired of it, and they put the whole thing out, and you pay ten bucks or twenty bucks, and just you know buy these collections. So, um, I had a, a personal rule, which was I won't pay more than five dollars per Nintendo game, um, and I have over three hundred NES cartridges, um, which is ridiculous because I, I don't really consider myself to be a an NES collector. <laughs> But, you know, that's what I would do when I would go to thrift stores. I, if I saw NES games that I didn't have uh, for a buck or two, I would pick them up, you know. And um, that's just how it was back then. You could you could get them anywhere, and you could get them super cheap. Like I've said before, you know, by the time um, you had eBay, you had um, online sales, you had all this stuff. And, and um, when it became more of a collector's item than just old stuff, you know, when it was old stuff, it was worthless. And that's when I built my collection up now. You know, it's retro, and it's cool, and it's uh, collectible, and the prices went through the roof, you know, and people found out you could make money by flipping this stuff, and that's pretty much when I quit buying it. I mean, the collection that I had is the collection I have, so, and one thing that's always helped me is I've always kind of been a generation behind when it comes to video game consoles. Like, I had the Atari 2600 for so long, um... That, um, you know, I got the NES after the Super Nintendo had already been released. Um, I got my original PlayStation for Christmas in 97, and it came out um, in Christmas in 94. So, you know, by the time I got into these consoles, people were already, you know, ditching. You know, there, there wasn't, um, not on a wide scale, not um, built in natively, none of these consoles supported backwards compatibility. You couldn't just plug an NES game into a SNES. Um, now, later on, there were adapters, you know, and, and things like that. But 
Um, you know, you could do that in the early days. So when the Super Nintendo came out, people ditched their old Nintendos. Um, you know, when the Nintendo came out, people ditched their old Atari collections. So that's kind of what I did was I just stayed a few years behind. It wasn't, uh, you know, a big, um, some master scheme plan that I came up with. It just worked out that way. But, um, yeah, you know, when everybody was buying up NES stuff, that's when I kind of built my Atari collection up. So I do still play Nintendo uh, to a certain extent today. Um, I've got three different ways, mostly, that I do it. The first is in my uh, entertainment room, or whatever you want to call it, our little uh, upstairs living room. Uh, I built a uh, like a home theater PC, and I put a bunch of emulators on it. And I actually bought two wireless Xbox 360 controllers um, that are dedicated to that. So I use those. I, I mean, I bought the uh, the PC uh, wireless kits for them. Uh, so I got two uh, controllers dedicated just to that. So occasionally we fire that machine up, and you can play. Um, mostly we play Mame on it, to be honest. But um, it does have the NES on it, so occasionally we play NES games up there. But really, we don't do that too much. I also have the NES emulator for my iPad, and I talked about this a little bit on one of the the uh, iCade episode. I do have the iCade, but I also have the iCade 8-bitty, which is looks just like a um, it's laid out like an original NES controller, but it's Bluetooth. And um, the NES emulator for the iPad supports that controller, so um, you know I'm I'm never going to be a fan of uh, these. Um, like a touch, virtual touch version of a pad on top of a tablet. I just, it doesn't feel right. My thumbs are always in the wrong place. I'm not, they always move and I'm not pressing where I think I'm pressing. Uh, but playing it with a controller is not bad, you know. So, uh, in fact, I'm going on a trip next week. So, that's one of the things I plan on doing is taking the, the 8-bit uh, controller and the iPad and getting some uh, game time in in a hotel room. So that's the second way. And then the third way is um, on a Retron 3, which is a clone, a Famiclone is kind of a generic term for these Nintendo clones. There's been a lot of them. There's been the Yobo. There's been the um, FC. Uh, so different clones where people have uh, basically retro-engineered or reverse-engineered the old uh, Nintendo consoles and built new versions of them. And they all have different varying degrees of compatibility issues, but the Retron, um, I actually got mine free from uh, Video Game Trader Magazine. If you uh, aren't a fan, be sure to check out Video Game Trader Magazine. I do uh, write articles for them, uh, and they have joined forces with J2 Games, which is another um, great online website and great store if you're in the Atlanta area. Uh, But anyway, they sent me a Retron 3 uh, to review for the magazine, and I hooked it up, and the Retron 3 actually has slots for NES, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis cartridges. So it plays all three. And the bigger selling point for me was it also has the original um, ports for the controller. So you can actually plug in the original NES controller, uh, Super Nintendo controller, or Sega Genesis, and use the original controllers to play the games with. So I hooked uh, the Retron 3 up in a little spare area in the house. And that would have been probably last September or October, maybe. And it's been hooked up there ever since I drug the, uh, I have this 30 gallon tub with all the Nintendo games in it now. And I drug that out and it's been sitting by that TV ever since the kids have been, um, digging through actually truth be told, uh, Susan's been getting the most use out of it. And every now and then I will hear the, um, uh, music of Dr. Mario coming from, uh, coming from upstairs. And I know what she's doing up there. But the kids have enjoyed playing it as well. They enjoy uh, the Mario games and um, uh, just going through and doing that. And that's actually saying a lot because um, Mason's game of choice is uh, Call of Duty, the newest Call of Duty on the PlayStation 3. And Morgan has, like, she got an iPod Touch and she has, I think she's installed every single thing that's free from the iTunes store. She has like 900 million different little free games on there. Um, so it is kind of a testament to the NES that, um, it would even hold their attention, you know, and, but they have enjoyed it. They've, they've gone back and played some games. I'm still waiting for Susan to invite, uh, her old college friends over and, uh, have a marathon gauntlet session up there, which I'm sure is coming sooner than later. But, um, 
Now, one thing I've talked about on some of my older podcasts is um, my console copiers. I have several. I have a, a fairly large collection. I mean, I guess a dozen or so, but that's pretty large compared to most people's collection of console copiers. Uh, so I have several for probably the most is Super Nintendo. and I have a couple for Sega Genesis and um, three or four for the Nintendo 64. But I've never seen uh, a console copier for the original Nintendo, and that was because Nintendo games use different mappers, and um, it's kind of like the way that the internals of the cartridge were laid out, like where the um, different things were stored, and I don't think that the console copiers do a good job. You, you would have had to program the mappers in to the, to the console copier, uh, and so it's not really an um, easy thing to do from a hardware standpoint. But instead of console copiers, now we have um, flashcards for the NES. There are a couple different ones out there. Um, the one that I've probably heard the most about is the Power Pack, uh, which is about 135 bucks. It's not compatible with uh, the clone system, so you'd have to use it on an original NES. It's also not compatible with all mappers, so you could go online and find out what games will and won't work with it, but there are um, several games that won't work with this. Um, and they have a, a compact flash version where you can put a CF card in there, or there's a USB version where you can just plug it into your computer and copy games over. But the exciting new one uh, that is on the edge of coming out is the EverDrive um, N8. And the PAL version has already been released, but I think everybody's kind of clamoring and waiting for the NTSC version to pop. Uh, right now, the PAL version's $109, and it uses an SD card. Um, so with an SD card, you can easily put the entire Nintendo collection on one card, plug it in, uh, and then just go through the menu and pick whatever game. And apparently, uh, based on what I've seen just on the mappers that are listed, it's um, very compatible. There are... You know, with any of these things that's not 100% original, I mean, whether it's a flashcard or a clone system or an emulator, there are always going to be little things that don't work or little things that aren't exactly right. And, um, you know, you really just have to decide how much those things are worth to you. I mean, on the um, Retron 3, which is, I think, probably the most compatible NES clone that I've ever seen, um, you know, there are a couple of times where... Uh, the music's not quite right. Like one voice channel is higher than another voice channel or something, or, or a color is off just a little bit. And, you know, I mean, like my kids, they don't care. Um, cause they never played the original. My wife doesn't even, uh, you know, it doesn't phase her at all. So it, it, I guess, I mean, if you put an original NES side by side, you, you would definitely be able to see differences, but it just matters if those differences matter to you, you know? Um, I still have my original NES. I think when I moved in with Susan, we didn't need two hooked up. Uh, so um, I just took that NES, my original one, and boxed it up. It's always funny um, when people say, like, well, when did you get into retro stuff? Because I always think, it wasn't retro when I got into it. I mean, you know, people say, oh, you know, the NES is retro. It wasn't when I bought it. I mean, it was a couple years old, but, um, but yeah, you know, the... Uh, all the old stuff that I have was new stuff when I got it. It's just old now. Um, I did, when I bought my Super Nintendo, I was working at um, Best Buy, and the PlayStation was already out, and they had marked the Super Nintendo down to $99. So that's when I bought my Super Nintendo. And right after I bought it, um, I decided I was going to sell my original Nintendo. And someone suggested that I sell it at a pawn shop. And I had bought a lot of stuff at pawn shops, but I had never sold anything in a pawn shop. I didn't even know, you know, how it works. So I boxed up all my Nintendo stuff and um, took it down to this pawn shop. So I had a, a Nintendo, the controllers, the zapper, of course, uh, and about 50 games. And I took it into this pawn shop, and a guy looked at it, and he said he would give me... $30. And I was like, what? Like less than a dollar each per game? And that doesn't even you know include the system. And I knew they were selling games for, you know, five bucks each or ten bucks each or whatever. So I, I was like, nah. I think I'll keep it. And I'm glad I did that, you know, because I mean, how much money, for those of us, you know, that are into 
all these silly hobbies, have we spent, you know, rebuying things that we had uh, as kids, you know? Um, I mean, for me, like, I hung on to most of my electronics. I mean, the old computers and the old video games and things like that. But, you know, how many toys have I bought that I used to own as a kid or that someone else owned and I always wanted or, um, you know, movies that I remember watching as a kid. So it's like we're we're constantly buying these things that we used to have and rebuying them. So uh, I'm glad that I didn't get rid of that uh, original NES. I'm glad that I hung on to it and uh, all those games. Like I said, um, during the 90s, those games just seemed to multiply. So now I have more games that are uh, boxed up. Actually, they're they're in a tub in the hallway right now. But that's pretty much it. That's um, uh, my story about the NES. I uh, played it back then. I still play it off and on today. I thought it was uh, a great system and um, filled that great little niche during... Uh, I mean, it really brought back, brought us back from the video game crash. Those uh, few years where it looked like things were taking a downturn. So Nintendo saved the day. So that's kind of what the console means to me. That concludes this episode of You Don't Know Flat. As always, I want to thank everybody who called in and who wrote in this week. Uh, and thanks again to Doug McCoy for sponsoring this Nintendo-dedicated episode of You Don't Know Flack. Don't forget you can pick up the digital versions of Doug's books, Anesthetized and Arcadian, over at Amazon. And there are links to those over on Doug's website, which is authordougmccoy.com. Doug also has uh, several blog entries I just checked earlier. Um, related to the NES and the arcade stuff. So um, even if you don't have a Kindle or don't want to pick up those books, be sure to check uh, Doug's website out. Next week's show is going to be about programming, basic programming specifically. So if you have any feedback about that uh, or any basic programming questions, you can always send them to me at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com or leave a message on the You Don't Know Flat voice mailbox, which is area code 206 309 Thanks again for listening to You Don't Know Flat, and we'll see you next week.